Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, July 19th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Campaigning for the midterm elections is heating up, and for one new super PAC, that means spending to try to sway the midterms on the issue of drug pricing. The leader of that group, the patient advocate David Mitchell, joins us to talk about his strategy. Hey everyone, it's biotech earnings season again. We'll preview the burning questions on the minds of investors as biotechs report on the business of selling drugs during the second quarter of the year. So CRISPR might be the sexiest field in science, but it hasn't yet been proven out in actual human beings, which means a lot can go wrong. STAT senior writer Sharon Begley joins us to discuss the risks of CRISPR highlighted in recent science publications. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round, packed with hot takes on Martin Shkreli's old company, a chastened price hiker, and the biggest biotech IPO of the year. The November midterm elections are fast approaching, and political spending is ramping up. And for one new super PAC, that means spending money to try to help candidates deemed likely to take action to lower drug prices, and to try to defeat candidates who look likely to back the status quo. The bipartisan group just took on its first target, Bob Hugan, the longtime Celgene executive who's now running for Senate as a Republican in New Jersey. Let's listen to a snippet of the attack ad that the group is spending $1.5 million to air in New Jersey for a few weeks this summer. This is the drug that keeps me alive. The price to make one capsule, less than a dollar. The price the drug company charges, over $600. Why? Ask Bob Hugan. It features a woman identified as a cancer survivor who relies on a cell gene drug to stay alive. Now he wants to be your senator. But I'll always know him as the guy who made a killing off cancer patients like me. The leader of the group behind this ad, David Mitchell, is here to join us today. David is a cancer patient and a veteran of Washington health policy circles, and he's head of a patient advocacy group fighting high drug prices called Patients for Affordable Drugs. And last week, David announced the launch of his new super PAC, which is called Patients for Affordable Drugs Action, that is funding the Hugan attack ads and other efforts to sway the midterms on the issue of drug pricing. Most of the funding comes from John and Laura Arnold, a billionaire couple in Houston who have taken a pretty keen interest in shaping the debate around drug pricing. You can follow David on Twitter at DavidP4AD. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. So, David, uh, Bob Hugan is obviously the candidate running for federal office this election cycle that's most closely connected to the pharma industry. How did you decide to oppose his campaign? It was easy. Bob Hugan stands for everything we are trying to stop, which is the abuse of patients, the abuse of taxpayers, the abuse of our system. In Bob Hugan's case, He doubled the price of a key cancer drug. I happened to take that drug for five and a half years. He doubled it, forcing patients into bankruptcy, uh, losing their homes, uh, having to refinance their homes, debt. Uh, So he is an obvious person for us to focus on in our work. So your group is also spending six figures to support the re-election bid of Representative David McKinley, who's a Republican out of West Virginia. Why did you pick him to support? David McKinley is actually a really fine leader on the issue of drug prices. He has helped support and actually led the work on behalf of bills that would, for example, speed generics to market. He hasn't taken a lot of money from the drug companies. He is not beholden to them. 
and we are bipartisan, and we wanted to pick a range of races, and so he was an obvious choice for us as someone to get behind. So, David, what kind of federal policies are you hoping to see these candidates support when it comes to drug pricing? I would put them in three big buckets. Number one is we think the time has come for Medicare to negotiate directly over drug prices. The Secretary of Health and Human Services has gone before the Senate twice in the last six weeks and said directly that pharmacy benefit managers who are charged with negotiating on behalf of Medicare are actually standing in the way of lower prices. Second, we believe that uh, we should take steps to ensure that PBMs don't do all their work in secret and that we can see what's going on inside them, how they're pricing drugs, how much profit they're taking, uh, etc. And third, we believe we need to reform our patent system. Drug companies game the patent system to extend their period of exclusivity and keep their monopolies. And when they do that, they drive up the price of our drugs. A perfect example is Mr. Hugan's company, Celgene, that doubled the price of uh, a key drug over 10 years, raised the price 25% in just the last 18 months. And that's all because they've managed to game our patent system to block a cheaper generic from coming to market. Now, there's a huge amount of money being spent on both sides in these races that you're playing in. And as your group points out, the employees of drug companies collectively spent several hundred million dollars donating to politicians in the last election cycle. That's obviously a lot more than you're putting into these races. Is your spending going to be enough to make a difference? We're going to be wildly outspent by pharma. We will never match them dollar for dollar, but we have people and we have our stories. We can't play everywhere, uh, but we can play in some key places that we think will make a difference. So David, I'm curious, you know, as you know, the issue of drug pricing is pretty complicated. And I imagine most people probably agree with you that prices on the whole are too high. But after that, the details, the why, the how, and the what about it get pretty murky. Do you expect politicians in the heat of the election cycle to sort of get beyond simplistic sound bites when it comes to this issue? And, and, and do you plan to do so? Well, our job is to try and make the issue understandable for patients. In the electoral arena, you have to go where people are. People want the government to negotiate on their behalf. And we believe that we can speak to them in language they'll understand and say, support this candidate because they'll do the right thing to lower drug prices, oppose that candidate because they won't. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, so now let's break down a couple of things of what David just said. That line about Bob Hugan standing for the abuse of patients and taxpayers in the patent system, we reached out to the Hugan campaign to give them a chance to respond, and we never heard back. Yeah, and even though they didn't speak to us, uh, it is worth noting that the Hugan campaign was very clearly expecting this line of attack, whether it came from Mitchell's group or from Bob Menendez, uh, his Democratic opponent. Within 24 hours of Mitchell's ad hitting the airwaves, Hugan struck back with a pharma-focused spot of his own. This one struck a very different tone. It featured a father whose son was provided the cancer drug Revlimid from Celgene after an insurance company declined to pay for it. Let's listen to a clip from Hugan's ad. Bob Hugan definitely is a man of character. It's not the drugs. It's not the profits. It's a very personal thing for Bob Hugan. 
So I think what's interesting about both of these ads, especially played back to back, is that they're both based on fact. It's true that Revlimid costs X percent more than it did 10 years ago. And it's true that Celgene, like virtually every commercial um, drug company, provides drug for free to certain patients who otherwise can't get access. Yeah, I know. I think this points to just how complicated uh, the drug pricing issue is, right? Both of these things can be simultaneously true. And I think, you know, to the extent that this becomes a big issue in the New Jersey Senate campaign, voters are going to have to weigh these competing arguments about how drug companies ought to operate. Welcome. If you are the host, press star now. Otherwise, please wait and you will be joined into the conference. Great segment, guys. And, and again, thanks for taking the question and, and congratulations on the data. Adam, if you could give us maybe some color on how we should be thinking about the uh, next coming week in biotech. Oh, Damien, you are channeling your inner cell side analyst. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Second quarter earnings season is upon us here uh, starting next week. So we thought we would sort of take a look at some of the kind of burning questions that are on the minds of investors as we get into next week. So the big one to start off with is drug prices. Adam, are we going to be seeing a slowdown in drug price hikes reported in these earnings calls? It's a great question. And I think, you know, it will come up on all the conference calls starting next week. So the investment bank Cowan uh, noted uh, recently that there were only five price increases enacted between April and July of this year, which was well below the 24 price increases taken during the second quarters of 2017 and 2016. So I think that suggests that drug and pharma companies are taking a more conservative stance when it comes to drug price increases these days. I think it's going to be interesting too to hear how analysts question the companies about these things, because you know, analysts are much more concerned with forecasts and earnings per share rather than scoring points by sort of nebulously saying that we've paused drug price increases. So I'm looking forward to hearing those questions, but I'm also looking forward to hearing how executives characterize this when they're speaking to an analyst community. Because as we all know, like there's some pretty deft code switching that takes place for biotech CEOs or biopharma CEOs when they're talking to the financial community versus when they are ostensibly addressing Donald Trump. Right. And then, you know, then the other big kind of basket of questions we'll probably hear is is about mergers and acquisitions. You know, those are sort of favorite questions on on these conference calls. You know, M&A activity has been kind of decent this year, but not great. Certainly kind of less than hoped for. Um, so I think it's a given that, you know, we'll hear analysts ask CEOs about that. And that we'll hear this sort of same stock and trade answers of like, well, you know, we're looking for something that is adequately priced given the upside value and we're being diligent and we're listening to all offers and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the responses to those M&A questions from CEOs is just almost comically banal. I mean, it really, you know, how to fill space and time by saying nothing. So let's move on to specific companies. Adam, what are you going to be watching uh, when it comes to Amgen's earnings call? Amgen, probably the most interesting thing to look for is the commercial performance of Amovig, which is Amgen's newly launched migraine drug. It was approved in May. Uh, and so this is the first time that we'll kind of, kind of see how that drug has performed in the market. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting, although it, it comes with some caveats. So Novartis, which is partnered with Amgen on the migraine drug, 
said that there had been roughly 9,000 prescriptions through the end of June from, from when the drug was approved. But when we look for a revenue number, it's important to remember that a lot of those patients are getting the drug for free in the states that allow for that at the rollout. So if you see a headline that the revenue performance is underperforming for that drug, you should keep in mind that this is a long and complicated process. Moving on, I'm looking, I'm interested in seeing how Acadia Pharmaceuticals reports numbers. You know, they have this drug called Nuplizid. It's a drug that's used to treat Parkinson's patients that suffer from hallucinations and delusions. And recently it's received a good bit of media scrutiny about possible safety problems, including kind of an excessive number of patient deaths. So I really want to kind of see how sales might be affected by all that in the second quarter. Let's move on to Biogen which reports earnings on uh, July 24th, which is interesting timing, right? Because that's one day between a big data presentation that you guys are going to be watching closely. Yeah, so the timing is a little bit awkward because the very next day, Biogen is expected to tell the world just how well one of its new Alzheimer's drugs actually works. And that follows the company making a big splash two weeks ago with a fairly nebulous press release saying that the drug had promise. But in the meantime... Biogen's executives will be basically holding their tongues on that during this earnings call, and the focus will be more on a drug called Spinraza, which treats the rare disease spinal muscular atrophy. That one is particularly fascinating because the way that it's dosed and the way that it's priced make gaming out its actual future revenue kind of difficult for Wall Street, so it's always a point of contention or a point of focus every quarter when Biogen discloses just how well it's selling. And then there's one uniting factor for three of the other big biotechs, which is they've all recently launched new drugs, and investors are going to want to know how well these drugs are selling. Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. So, you know, if you look at Celgene, Gilead, Regeneron, they all have relatively new drugs that are important for their overall financial well-being, maybe even more than just kind of the overall earnings and, you know, total revenue picture. These are the drugs that, that people want to look at. You know, with Celgene, you have this drug called Otesla, which treats uh, psoriatic arthritis. Uh, with Gilead, it, where, you know, everyone will be kind of paying attention to this new HIV drug they have. It's called Bictarvi. Um, and also, obviously, their new CAR-T therapy, uh, Yescarta. And then Regeneron, as, as Damien knows and has written about a lot in the past, um, Dupixin the company's drug for atopic dermatitis. And that one's fun because it carries, uh, I believe, what is a biopharma first, which is that Regeneron CEO Len Schliefer tried to launch a viral hashtag called hashtag denied RX to raise awareness of patients being denied their Dupixent prescriptions. So the revenue number that we learn next week will give us some clues as to whether that hashtag has taken off. So CRISPR is this cool genome editing technology with the potential to perhaps one day treat and maybe even cure a host of diseases. But it's also very new, which means the world is still piecing together its many implications. And the latest research suggests that CRISPR might cause more genetic havoc than anybody realized before. Joining us today to talk about that is Sharon Begley, Stat's senior science writer. She's been following these studies closely. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Sharon, you have become a little bit of a villain for the CRISPR fanboys, particularly on Twitter. It's like you're the Darth Vader of CRISPR journalism, or should I say the Darth Vader of CRISPR journalism. <sighs> so, <laughs> why are you... Why? <laughs> All right, that was bad. Let's get serious again. So, Sharon, why are you always the bearer of bad CRISPR news? 
you didn't mention, Adam, that I also now have my own hashtag on Twitter, the Begley Buy. Um, so <laughs> uh, apparently um, people who um, invest in the three main CRISPR companies think that I'm off in my you know, little studio apartment ordering stuff from AdGene and doing the experiments myself and showing that there is a problem here. So in fact, the way journalism works is that we read the uh, studies published in reputable journals done by reputable labs, and we think it's sort of our obligation if we're covering a topic such as CRISPR to tell the world, to tell potential patients and just interested readers and maybe investors what is going on. And whenever people get apoplectic that I'm covering a study that suggests that CRISPR might have, you know, some problems, some safety issues, whatever, I wonder, well, do you want me to just like ignore it and bury it under a rock? Is that better? So anyway, it's been a very weird experience. And that sort of act of journalism was something that you did this week, correct? So tell us a little bit about what these latest studies uh, showed. The latest study um, was done out of the Sanger Institute in England. And basically what they did is use standard CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the genomes of a few kinds of cells. Um, and they found something that George Church, among others, has been warning about for, gosh, going on five years now, namely when you use the CRISPR-Cas9 system to cut DNA to make what's called a double-stranded break, the cell rushes into action and it repairs or it tries to repair that break in a certain way. And sometimes those repairs cause what Church calls genome vandalism. And specifically what they found is that there were a bunch of deletions, insertions, things turned upside down, very far from the editing site, like thousands of base pairs away, so far away that many of the earlier or so far CRISPR studies had not thought to look there for inadvertent genetic damage. And that could be a problem if the damage is in a gene that a cell actually needs to live to function, or if the damage is in a gene that, for instance, suppresses a tumor. So let's talk about how the companies working on commercializing CRISPR-backed technologies responded to the studies. In statements this week, Editas, Intellia, and CRISPR Therapeutics all essentially wrote off the research as irrelevant to what they're doing. So Sharon, how are you interpreting the strategies of these companies in responding to this concerning research? So the response seems to be of two types. One is, there's nothing to see here. We knew that this might be a problem. This is not new, don't worry about it. But a second theme that's emerging, the companies are now sort of putting up these trial balloons, suggesting that, you know what? Our CRISPR therapies are going to be so effective they are going to keep people alive who would otherwise be dead very soon. They're going to keep children from suffering from horrible, debilitating diseases. And because of that, if they also turn out to, in some people, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line, to also cause cancer or have some other deleterious effect, that might be an acceptable trade-off. So Sharon, what are you going to be watching down the line as these companies try to move forward with their technologies? So the CRISPR companies are very close to filing uh, for an IND, i.e. to start the clinical trials for their first therapeutics. Um, Editas is probably going to be first into the clinic. And 
probably, you know, I think we should all be looking for adverse events um, in those clinical trials. And if there are some, including the kind that these recent studies have pointed out might be a problem, then we're going to start hearing um, a sort of risk-benefit argument. You know, going out on a limb, I would say the companies probably have a pretty strong argument because many of the diseases that they're targeting are awful, and that might be a trade-off that patients as well as regulators are willing to to accept. So Sharon, thanks a lot for joining us and good luck in finally squashing the republic. Thank you so much. Guys, what time is it? I'm afraid it's time for a lightning round. Oh, my favorite time. Let's start with Martin Shkreli's old company. You guys wrote a great story this week about how this company is not in good shape right now. Yeah, the gist of it is, you may recall Turing Pharmaceuticals. Well, it has since changed its name to Viera, uh, but its business model remains the same as you remember, which is that it sells a drug called Daraprim, whose price it raised by a substantial amount. Um, and that drug treats a fairly rare infection called toxoplasmosis. And what we learned is that owing to the fact that toxoplasmosis rates are declining and that insurance companies really don't like paying that famously high price, Viera's revenues have been on the decline. And in the first quarter of this year, the company took a $1.2 million loss. And there's a new risk to that story, isn't there, Rebecca? That's right. So just on Thursday morning, right before we started recording this podcast, um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, that's Alex Azar, announced that the Trump administration is going to form a working group to look at an idea that has for a long time been pretty politically toxic, and that's importing drugs from other countries uh, in limited cases where there might be a dramatic price increase. Yeah, and that puts a greater risk on any company that uses a closed or a restrictive distribution system to kind of maintain a drug monopoly. And that's kind of the business model that Martin Schreckelli used to when he formed uh, Viera and even his old company, Retrofin. It's also kind of a fascinating left turn, like literally left turn, in that drug importation was a banner issue for the likes of Bernie Sanders and has been anathemic to drug companies. And now we have an administration that I think largely has been perceived as being favorable to the industry, minus a few things, embracing this idea, even if it is in limited cases, that I imagine sort of raises the hackles of traditional pharma. So let's move on to Novartis. There was some news this week that the Swiss pharma giant decided not to raise prices on its medicines in the U.S., for the rest of the year. Is that a significant piece of news? I think so. And I think it raises a couple of questions. Uh, one is, you know, are we going to see other big pharma companies do the same thing? Or is this sort of a Novartis specific penance inspired by the huge mess they got into with that deal with Michael Cohen? Yeah, I think it's also noting that Novartis already raised prices this year. I think it was back in June. That's what uh, Sarah Carlin Smith, a reporter from Politico, had tweeted when she saw the news about uh, Novartis deciding that it wasn't going to raise prices for the rest of the year. So it, you know, maybe there's a little bit of spin here too. And I think it's worth watching whether on January 1st, 2019, we might see even larger price hikes than you normally get at the start of a year as sort of compensation uh, for the 2018 year off from price hikes. Finally, we can talk about biotech IPOs. So there have been 37 so far this year, which is on pace for its largest number since 2015. But most interestingly, we saw this week the largest one of the year in the form of Rubius Therapeutics, which went public with a $2 billion valuation. But Adam, what 
differentiates Rubius from most of the rest of the biotech IPOs? I think it's their hype line. Base. So as Adam mentioned, as we alluded to last week, Rubius is a company that hasn't yet tested anything in human trials, which is not a knock on it necessarily. But there was a time in which going public for a drug company meant you were already in phase two or maybe even phase three. And there has been a pretty pervasive trend of investors accepting the risk of preclinical companies and taking them public. And Rubius, with this $2 billion valuation, it feels like kind of a, a watermark of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing when you look at the valuation being given to a company like Rubius. Like you said, no, no drugs in human clinical trials. You made this comparison in the readout newsletter, uh, Damien, to a company like Zogenix, which has a drug which just successfully completed two phase three clinical trials. They're going to be filing for an approval later this year, and their market value is actually lower than Rubius's. So the forward-looking thing for Rubius is that in the first quarter of next year, they're going to ask the FDA for permission to start their first clinical trial. And that'll actually kind of be something to watch, even though that's usually a matter of box checking for drug companies. Rubius is working on a pretty newfangled technology, and there's no guarantee that the agency won't have questions that delay that. So that's the next thing to watch for. So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to thank Hyacinth Empanado and Jeff Delvisio, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke, the man in the big chair, is our executive producer. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked and didn't like about this week's episode, ask us questions, or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week. <laughs>